Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, we are about to get into one of my favorite series that we do almost annually. We've done it several years now and we do it in the summer usually and it's a series called you ask for it and this is a series where you drive the content so how it works if you're not familiar we just ask for you to submit questions about anything personal questions spiritual questions relationship questions questions about the bible about culture about the news about topics uh, current events whatever you submit the question what we try to do is go through a couple each week for a few weeks and see what the bible says about those questions what the answers to those questions are as best as we can get from the bible some weeks when we do this there are themes the questions kind of fit together so we've clumped them all in one week Sometimes it's just helter-skelter, kind of whatever. This week is sort of a combination of that, and you'll see why in a minute. It's sort of, uh, they all have a similar premise. So the reason that I've got, I've got three questions that we're going to get through today in this opening week, and they're not related necessarily, but they are in the premise or the purpose of the question, because each of these three questions begins with something like this. Well, I've heard people say blank. What does the Bible say about that? Is that true? Or there's this saying, blank, is that biblical? So we've got three questions that were submitted sort of in that line of thinking, and we're going to look at all three of these uh, today and see what the Bible says about what people say. It's kind of the theme for today. So let's jump right into the first one, and it's about the afterlife, and it's sort of a series of questions that we will try to answer pretty quickly and focus in on, I think, what the heart of this question was and the main question was. So the question was basically, you know, I hear people say that our loved ones, when they die, look down on us. Is that real? Is that true? Is that in the Bible? And there's all sorts of questions like, you know, uh, what happens when we die? Uh, do people watch over us? Do people, one, one part of the question was, do people, do, when they die, get angel assignments? Are they meeting people? Will we recognize them? Those types of questions. So what I want to do is sort of set the groundwork at the opening. Now, we did do a series in the spring. It was called Catch You on the Flip Side, and this series was all about death and the afterlife. So some of these topics we covered, but if you are interested in this topic and we don't cover something that you have a question about, I'd encourage you to go on our website, firstcenturykc.com, and check out our previous messages, either audio or video. Find that series, Catch You on the Flip Side, and uh, see if maybe something there that we're not talking about today sort of answers a question that you might have about this topic. So when it comes to death and the afterlife, there are a couple things that we know from the Bible pretty clearly. And one of them we just know in general from life, okay? The first thing we know is everyone dies. Just blew your mind there, didn't I? Everyone dies, and we know from Scripture that everyone is judged. Hebrews 9.27 says each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. Everyone dies, and everyone is judged. 
What we also know about the afterlife, to some degree, we don't know exactly how it works, but we know this is what happens uh, also from living, is that there's a separation at death. And that's really in two ways. First, our body and soul separate. So you know that your body dies because you put it in a casket and bury it in the ground or you, you know, burn it up and put it in an urn, whatever. Uh, we know that the body stays and decays, but the soul lives on. That's, that's what Christians believe. That's what the Bible teaches is that the soul lives on. There's this immediate separation um, from spirit and body. We know that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, I'd rather be absent from the body or die, I'd rather die, and so to be present with the Lord. So we know this is immediate. Our soul splits immediately. But then what happens after judgment is there's a, really a separation that we talk about a lot in church. I'm sure you know about this. Heaven and hell or paradise and Hades is what maybe you might see more in the Bible. Now we know that this is true and there's one incident here that we read. It's in Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells a parable um, and what we call an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, he doesn't really give us a lesson on hell per se. It's just a it is, but it's not about the separation, but the separation is in the story. So it's called the rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man is a rich man. He has all he ever needed, all he could ever want. He eats the finest foods and has the finest clothes, lives the finest life, but one day he dies. Lazarus has the name of a beggar, and he doesn't have everything. He doesn't have anything. He's a beggar, and he also dies. Well, for the purpose of the story, Jesus says that the rich man was unrighteous and he goes to Hades for eternity. And for the purpose of the story, Jesus says Lazarus was righteous and he goes into paradise. And Abraham, or Abraham, uh, is, he's in the story too. But the rich man, in, it says in hell, Jesus says, he looks up and sees Lazarus next to Abraham. And he says, Father Abraham, would you bring Lazarus down here so that he can drop his finger in water and put a drip of water on my tongue because I'm in anguish, in anguish in these flames. And so here's what we know about the separation of the afterlife. Abraham in the story tells the rich man, there's a great chasm between us. There's a great separation between you and Lazarus. You cannot cross over to him. He cannot cross over to you. So we know that we all die. We, our, our soul separates from our body at death. We're all judged. And then based on that judgment, there's a separation, heaven and hell, paradise and Hades. We also know about this separation with paradise, and also that it's really immediate because on the cross, he's between, Jesus is between two thieves, one mocking him and one cries out for mercy. And the one that cries out for mercy, Jesus says, I tell you the truth today, you'll be with me in paradise. So those are some of the things that we know about the afterlife. But let me, let me get to the heart of what really I think this series of questions was trying to get to. The main heart of the question was, when our loved ones die, are they looking down at us? Can they see what we're doing? Are they able to observe? Well, there's one verse, Hebrews 12, verse 1, that sort of hints at this, and so we'll look at it here for just a minute. Hebrews 12, 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So it talks about this great crowd of witnesses here. So the immediate context is the first word of Hebrews 12.1 is the word therefore. And so context is going to tell you if there's a therefore there, what is it therefore? 
So what chapter 12 is doing is it's connecting to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the series of biblical people with great faith. So what the author of Hebrews and Hebrews 12 is saying, I think, in the immediate context is these people that we've just talked about and listed and described, great people of faith, they are our example of how we can live our life of faith. That, that's the immediate context, I think, here of what he's talking about with these witnesses. They are examples. But I do think that it's not a stretch to say that even though he's talking strictly about them in this context, that there is a possibility in the way it, it's described that they are sort of watching and sort of cheering us on in our race. They've completed the marathon, and they're now waiting for us to cross the finish line, and they're going to cheer us on. So it's possible that's happening, which would then, again, not be a stretch, I don't think, to say that, well, our family members and friends who have died in Christ, they would then be able to look down upon us as well. To some degree, I don't think the Bible forbids that possibility, like shuts the door on that completely. And this is the closest that we get to an affirmation of that being a possibility. Let me say this one thing, though, and then we'll move to the next question. So now we know we're not sure if our loved ones are looking down on us, but it's a possibility the Bible leaves that open for us to consider. But here's what that doesn't mean. Because another part of the question was, when they die, do they get like... um, what was the term? Angel assignments. So let me just make this very clear. When people die, they do not become angels. Okay, angels are a totally separate creature, totally separate. It is not human turning into angel when we die. Angels were created in eternity past by God, and they are totally different. They are totally different species, totally different breed. They're somewhat of a supernatural type of creature. Uh, we are human. We are going to stay human when we live, and after we die, we're still going to be human. We're not going to be angels. So a loved one does not become your guardian angel. They don't look out for you in the way that we would think of a guardian angel, okay? If there are guardian angels that do that, which we don't know if that hap- that's true either, if there are, they are guardian angels, okay? So we know that that's the case. We don't change species after we die. What that also means is that your loved ones may be able to look down and observe, but they can't get involved. They can't interfere in your life, in your comings and goings. They can't bring some sort of mystical guidance to you. That is not really scripturally based. They don't have that power. They're, they're a dead spirit in eternity, okay? They're in paradise. They may be able to watch, but that's all they can do, okay? They, again, there's this chasm, remember, from the story in Luke? But there's a chasm between heaven and hell, yes, but we also know there's a chasm between this life and the afterlife. I can't just go willy-nilly back and forth. Neither can our loved ones who have already gone before us. They, there's a possibility that they can watch, but that's about it. So we don't know for sure if our loved ones are watching, but I think it's, it's, it's a, a neat thought to consider, and I love that the Bible kind of leaves it open. sort of a sense of comfort there, uh, a sense of peace there. I think it's kind of neat that that possibility is still open, uh, even when looking at this from a scriptural perspective. So that's the first question. Here's the second question. Again, it's not the same question at all, but the theme, the reason is the same. The first question, again, was I've heard people say this. The second question is this. Is the saying, God only helps those who help themselves, biblical? is the saying, God only helps those who help themselves, biblical. Now, I will say this phrase or versions of this phrase have actually been in use for almost 2,500 years or so. 
So even in ancient Greece, ancient writers like Sophocles and Euripides wrote some version of this statement. Uh, again, in, in 400 or so BC, they are writing this kind of language in their writings. We get more to more recent times in England in the 17th century, so you know, 300 years ago or so, uh, there was an Anglican priest named George Herbert, and he wrote a book of sayings and proverbs in his life, and he included a, an early version of this type of saying in that book. But around the same time, also in England, there was an English uh, politician named Algernon Sidney, Algernon Sidney, who in the mid-17th century actually coined this actual phrase, word for word, God only helps those who help themselves, or God helps those who help themselves. But this phrase really became popular um, in the 18th century when Benjamin Franklin released his yearly book, uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. So as part of this annual work that he would release, um, it would include sayings and anecdotes and short stories and things like that. So he put this phrase in one of the annual uh, Poor Richard's Almanacs, and really from then on, once it hit print in, the, I believe, the 1730s or 40s, it has just become part of the vernacular of our American way of life. God helps those who help themselves, or God only helps those who help themselves. But the question was not, is that a phrase? We know it's a phrase. The question is, is that biblical? Is it in the Bible? Are the principles of it or the heart of it from the Bible? Now, let me just say, Scripture does affirm, I think the heart behind this phrase, Scripture does affirm the ethic of hard work. Scripture does say we should work hard, we should be diligent, you know, in all that we do at our job to, to earn a living. Let me give you a couple of scriptures here uh, that kind of point that out. Two scriptures from two different letters from the Apostle Paul. So in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, he says this. He writes, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. So Paul had a rule. And the rule was, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's 2 Corinthians 3.10. The rule that Paul had. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And then in another letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul writes, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So again, Scripture definitely, certainly affirms the ethic of hard work, earning an honest living, and providing for our family. So when it talks about helping yourself, in that vein, in that way of thinking, uh, the Scripture would affirm that, certainly. But these verses, although they get close to what we're looking for, they don't quite say that God helps these people or that God only helps these people. Okay, So we're, not, we're close, but we're not quite there. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at this phrase from sort of a big picture perspective, like a 30,000 foot view, and see if kind of this scripture about help yourself and God will help you, if that is in scripture or if it's biblical at all. And let me just tell you, I want to show you a verse, a very famous verse, in which I think that from a larger perspective, a big picture view, sort of a spiritual, eternal view, I think this phrase comes up a little bit short, okay? 
I think it comes up a little bit short. So a very famous verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is the first of what we call the Beatitudes. It's a series of teachings found within a larger sermon or teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the kind of the opening one. This is the baseline entry level. This is what God is looking for. So as he's saying, God only helps those who help him themselves. Is that what this Beatitude is saying? Well, to get to that, we have to, say, we have to understand what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does that verse even mean? What does that phrase, that saying even mean? So let's look at it in a different translation. The New Living Translation phrases that same verse, Matthew 5, 3, this way. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So right, he almost did it, right? God blesses those uh, who bless themselves or help themselves know. In fact, it's the opposite is what we see. Who are poor and recognize their need for him. So in a larger sense... God actually only helps those who know they need help and ask him for it. So it's not that God helps those who help themselves. It's in fact the opposite. God helps those who really cannot help themselves or who know they need help and ask him for it. Again, Scripture does affirm hard work, honest work, earning a living, providing for your family, all that sort of thing. But The problem with getting too hardcore and really Americanizing that phrase is that what happens is the people that then can help themselves typically don't ask God for help. And I think that's why in our Western culture in America, I think that's why we're seeing such a decline in Christianity, in biblical Christianity. I think that's why we're seeing a decline in church attendance, in church involvement, in people saying they're Christians and living out their faith. Here's why. Because now more than ever in our industrialized society, in our Western American culture, more often than not, most people can help themselves. And so we do, and we leave God out of the equation altogether. There are times where he would love to help us, times where we actually need help, but we are so trained and accustomed now, and life is pretty good. Life is pretty good for most people in the West anymore, that we just like, okay, if I can't, if I can't get it, I'll figure out how to get it. I'm not going to necessarily ask God to help me or ask God for wisdom or understanding. I'll figure it out. You know, if I have to mess things up, fine, I'll eventually get to the end. That's not, that's the opposite of the phrase. That's the opposite of the heart of what the Beatitudes are all about. So we, we need to see our need for God. Uh, so let me ask you a couple of questions to get you in thinking on this, on this way with this phrase. So what about times when the ends don't meet? You're trying to make the ends meet, right? What about when the math doesn't add up, when the budget's not there? Who do you rely on? Whose help do you seek? Do you immediately just freak out and worry and stress, get ulcers? Do you immediately just say, well, I got to do it. I got to do more. I got to work harder. And maybe you do for a season, but have you asked God to help you? It's just so easy to skip that step when Jesus says, that's the people God wants to help is those who know they need help and ask him for it. What about times when you need answers? Who do you turn to for hope? Yourself? That's silly because you're the one needing the answers. We need to turn to God for our hope. And how about this one? Here's the real issue. When life is good, when you are in a season where you are helping yourself and can help yourself and maybe don't have a ton of needs and you are blessed, 
Who do you thank for those blessings? Who do you praise for that good fortune? Do you take credit for it? Do you just think it's fate? Do you think it's your hard work that's doing it? Or do you say, God blessed me? God has provided for me. God has answered my requests and answered my prayers and met my needs, and I thank him for that. That's really what we're looking for in this attitude. So, does God help those who help themselves? Maybe in a manner of speaking, but I think spiritually it's more healthy for us to say, God is looking, he's ready and willing and looking for me to ask him for help, for guidance and wisdom, provision, all those things. And when I ask him, Boy, is he there to help. He's there to provide the help that I need when I ask him, as I see my need for him. Third question, similar premise again here, is another saying that the questioner is asking about. And so the third question we're going to look at today for a minute is this. Is the saying, if God brought you to it, he'll see you through it, a promise from God or just feel good words? Great question. Let me sort of give you the answer uh, early by saying it's possible that you have heard me make that statement before or something similar to it. If God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. So let me just say uh, with certainty, this is a major theme throughout the Bible. Now, the words aren't, there's not a verse that says that, but there, we're going to look at several occasions throughout Scripture where that's how God works. That's what He does. If He brings you to it, He will see you through it. A great example, we talked about Abraham last week. So Abraham, when he's called by God, all he's got to go on is this voice that says he's God told me to leave everything I know, where I live, all that's comfortable, and go to a land that He will show me. That's the call of Abraham, a non-believer. There's no Jew before Abraham. There's no Hebrew before Abraham. He is patient zero here, okay? He's Hebrew zero. God calls him and says, hey, Abraham, get up where you are and go to the land that I will show you. And guess what? God was faithful. Now, Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. He died long before that. Now, his son was a sort of a step in that direction, but what God was faithful he brought Abraham to something impossible, to something that could not happen, didn't make any sense naturally, but he saw him through it. Another great example is the ancestor of Abraham, a guy named Joseph, who we talked about recently in, our, in a previous series. Joseph is a guy that faced all sorts of trouble and dilemmas and cruelty and hardship and mistreatment and suffering. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. Then for the next 20 years, he was either a slave or a prisoner. And then through God's divine providence, he, God gives Joseph the answer to Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh, the number one guy in the land. And that propels Joseph to second in command in Egypt. And that puts him in this position to then lead Egypt through a famine. So God brought him to an impossible situation time after time after time in his life, but time after time after time, God saw him through it. He brought him to it and saw him through it. And Joseph saw this. He knew this. So when his brothers come years later to Egypt to beg for food before Joseph, not knowing who he is, he finally reveals his identity to them, says, hey, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery years ago. And here's what he says. Here's how he understood this principle. This is Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8. Joseph speaking here to his brother says, Don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. 
this famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. Then he says it a third time. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. So what Joseph is saying here is, if God brings you to it, he will see you through it. And I'm proof of that. That's what Joseph is saying. And then you look even at the Israelites, the Hebrews, 400 years of slavery after Joseph dies. But then God freed them through the hand of Moses. But then where are they led to? The Red Sea. Well, how are we... The, the Egyptian army's behind us. The Red Sea's in front of us. God brought them to it. But what did he do? He saw them through it. Supernaturally, the waters of the sea parted. They passed through on dry ground. And then the waters went back together and, and uh, drowned the army chasing behind them. God brought them to it. He saw them through it. And then uh, famous, one, another famous scripture, Psalm 23, verse 4 uh, the Lord is my shepherd passage. Verse 4 of that psalm says something very interesting here that I think applies to this question. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If God brings you to it, he will see you through it. We see this also in the life of Jesus. So both in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, okay? But when you look at Matthew 4, verse 1, and Luke 4, verse 1, it's interesting what it says. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. So this is a clear picture. God will bring you to it, but he will see you through it. It might be an impossible task that God is asking of you, but he's doing that by design because he wants to bring you through it, okay? It, comes, it kind of ties in with the last question. He's not going to set you up to do this thing that only you can do. He's going to set you up to do a thing that only he can do. If you trust him, ask him for help, he will help you. If he brings you to it, he will bring you, he will see you through it. Now, maybe, as we close, maybe you're saying about this last question, oh, that sounds cute, and that sounds nice, and I like the cliche, but I'm not buying it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on you, Stephen, because those are just feel-good words. What about the disciples who were all martyred for their faith? What about the early Christian church who suffered uh, for a couple hundred years? What about me? I've been sick for years. God's brought me to it, but I don't, I'm not seeing a way through it. Maybe, maybe you've been in financial trouble for months and months and months. You're like, well, God, I feel like God brought me here, but I'm not seeing him see me through anything. I'm struggling. I'm drowning. I'm dying here. What's the deal? Or maybe you're saying, you know, I've had these relational strains with family for years, and I, I see that God's brought me to it. I believe in God. He's faithful, but I don't see him bringing me through it. But with these things, let's remember we're playing the long game. We're playing the long game. We, ha we have to have an eternal mindset when it comes to even things that we face here and now. One more scripture as we close, and it's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. We read this a few weeks ago in our previous series, The Games. Let's look at it again here to answer this question. Paul says, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. 
All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Remember, whatever God's brought you to, He will see you through. But it's in His timing, and we have to trust Him. Now, you might say, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. No, no, it's not. Really, that's our only hope. That's your hope today. That no matter how long you've been suffering in a situation, if God is with you, as Psalm 23 says, even through the valley of the shadow of death, He is with you to lead you and guide you and comfort you through that, to bring you and see you through whatever you're facing, whatever impossible thing is in front of you, whatever Red Sea is on your horizon, whatever thing is in front of you and it's just overwhelming you, God is with you. He is faithful. In all that we face, God is with us. In all that you endure, God is faithful. He never fails. If he sees us through the here and now, if he answers your prayer and a miracle happens, praise God. But if we suffer and struggle all our lives, eventually we will still receive our reward. And that's the whole point in the first place. Right? The point of a life of faith is not to live happy, healthy, whole, and perfect now. It's to live faithfully now so that we can live happy, healthy, perfect, whole in eternity. So we do, God will bring you through things in this life, but there may be some things that you suffered with for a long time. There may be questions that you never get the answer to on this side of eternity, but we're playing the long game. We're believing God through whatever we face. He is powerful, faithful, and sure, and he will see you through and bring you through anything you face. So I do believe with all my heart, even though it sounds corny sometimes, and even though it can be murky to say this, it is true. If God brings you to it, he will see you through it. So hang in there. Keep believing. God is for you, and God is with you. Let's pray. God, thank you today for these questions. And I know that people say a lot of things and we hear a lot of things. There's a lot of neat sayings and cute sayings and phrases that may sound biblical or advice that may sound biblical. But what I really thank you for with these questions is that our, our people are thinking biblically. Uh, that, that your people are thinking, okay, this sounds right, but is it? This sounds good, but would God say that? Or is it just my friend or my neighbor or my family member saying something like that does it line up with scripture god that that's what we want we want to see what you say we want to hear what you say we want to hear from you and that's really the whole point of this series and it's fine to say nice sayings and nice things and it's good to hear helpful advice but let us ultimately be led by your spirit and be led by your word because it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path It is our hope in a world of hopelessness. It is our guide when things around us are dark and murky and scary. Your word supplies strength and wisdom and guidance and hope for our lives. It's our ultimate source of authority and hope for life. So help us to hear your words. Help us to read your word and apply it to our lives. And if we hear certain things, let's look and study and ask and seek and see Is that really what God says? Is that really what the Word says? Does it align with what God's already said? Help us to seek you and your words and your wisdom above all else because that's our only hope. And we put our trust and our faith completely in you and in your Word. 
So God, I thank you and praise you for those that are here today. I pray that you would bless them and keep them as we leave this place today and bring us back next time ready for more of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Thanks for being here today. Have an awesome rest of your weekend. And we will see you next time for week number two of You Asked For It. God bless you guys. Have a great week.